0: Today we're gonna to start the session with a conversation with Arjit Sengupta, founder and CEO of Able. Arjit is a serial entrepreneur and a serial entrepreneur in AI. Welcome to the show Arjit. it's great to have you here. Thank
1: you so much, I really appreciate it.
0: So let's get you introduced to our audience. You've done two AI startups. Tell us a bit about each of them. Uh, let's start with what what problems have you chosen to solve in either case?
1: Right. So the first startup uh, was called Beyond Core. Uh, it started out of some research I had done um, as part of the Harvard Business School Business Plan Contest. And what we were doing at the time was using AI to solve the problem of business intelligence. So think of it this way: um, analysts would go around and go through a lot of data, trying to figure out what graphs to draw. Uh, they would rarely do statistical tests to confirm that the patterns they were putting in those graphs were actually actionable, right? It might be just an outlier, a blip that would show up as being an important pattern. And we just believed there was a better way to do it. Uh, so we built this product which would use AI to it, it would literally point it at a data set and say what's driving my revenue or what's driving my customer churn. And it would look at many, many, many possible graphs, do the statistical analysis, and turn it into an animated briefing, which we had uh, made it sound a lot like a McKinsey consultant. So we literally observed how McKinsey consultants presented to executives, and we had it uh, talk the human through an animated briefing, telling them what's important. We would also give them uh, downloadable PowerPoint slides with speaker notes and Word document reports um, on the data. Uh, That went on to being, uh, getting a cool vendor from Gartner. It then uh, became a visionary in the Gartner Magic Quadrant for analytics. Gartner basically said that uh, that approach of what they now call augmented analytics, they used to call it smart data discovery in those days, that was disrupting analytics. Uh, Clay Christensen ended up writing an article in Harvard Business Review where he said that we were disrupting McKinsey which actually got us into a lot of trouble with McKinsey in those days. But uh, they were great partners in those days uh, until Clay wrote that article. But what was um, fun about it is we had taken something that was very complex, that you needed a lot of expertise to do well, and turned it into something where anybody could be empowered by it. Anybody could use it. Um, After we uh, got the magic quadrant, what ended up happening was we had also partnered with Microsoft, SAP, Salesforce, if you think of the major software providers, we had partnered with them. So several of them started wanting to acquire us and eventually we became part of Salesforce where BeyondCore became a part of Salesforce Einstein and specifically Salesforce Einstein Discovery, Einstein Data Insights, and a few other of the Einstein capabilities. So that was the first
0: one. Can I stop you for one second and ask you one strategy question in how you Mm -hmm. navigated BeyondCore? Uh, What vertical did you go after or was it completely a horizontal
1: play? Yeah, I deliberately did not want to go vertical specific because the way AI works, it is completely driven by the data. So one of my assumptions going in was this does not need to be vertical specific. And if we actually went vertical specific, which is what um, uh, investors and others always prefer because you can have a more focused market, my concern was... um, it would not actually work out. Now, um, if we should revisit this question when I come to the ABLE story, because I've learned a lot more since then. So there's some interesting twist to it when I come to the ABLE story. But in the beyond four days, it was very horizontal. We deliberately went, sure, went and made sure we were working with the largest banks, largest insurance companies, largest CPG firms, largest manufacturers. You pick a domain, we probably did a project there, a lot of stuff in healthcare. And the reason for it was I've always had this assumption that AI is fundamentally in horizontal play if done correctly. Um, And that's what, in Bianco, we did not specialize at all.
0: And did you specialize on any use case across those verticals?
1: So I think I should move to the uh, ABLE story for a second because the things you're pointing out is the issue we ran into, is that when you don't have any use case to focus on, you're going to cost. It becomes very difficult to sell. It becomes very difficult to have. That's a exactly where sell. I'm going
0: with this. That's yep. the reason I'm I'm driving you down this track yep. is to exactly highlight that. Uh, so, yep. so go ahead and explain what you're doing with Able, and then we'll come back to a, a comprehensive strategy discussion afterwards. Yeah,
1: but but the point you're making, uh, once we were acquired by Salesforce, Salesforce of course went very focused, right? So Salesforce went with hey, if you are trying to do a sales opportunity optimization, here's what you should do. If you are yeah. trying to improve uh, CSAT in a service operation, this is what you should do. And it was yeah. fascinating to watch how Salesforce actually does its business. It's, it's impressive, right? Very mm-hmm. metrics driven, very focused. Uh, we created these trainings that were very use case focused at the point, right? In ABLE, what we have done is, even though the technology is very horizontal, and to uh, take a step back and tell you what ABLE does, just like Bianco was using AI to create BI, what we found was by the time, um, you know, 2018 had come around last year, essentially everybody was trying to do AI. And they were running into the same problems people ran into in trying to do BI, which is there were not enough experts around, and doing best practices is actually quite difficult. So at Able, we started doing AI by using AI. Uh, and we were able to use a lot more development that had happened in the domain of AI. Like in BeyondCore, I had to build the underlying technologies myself. In the case of Able, we could just use things like scikit-learn, TensorFlow, GBM, um, you know, um, h2o.ai, um, uh, take your pick, SparkML. We were just able to use all of that. We were able to use AWS SageMaker. So underlying technologies had been done, so we focused on AI for AI. This time around, one of the things we did very quickly is, even though the technology is completely horizontal, we use these things we call um, blueprints, which are extremely use case specific. So I might have a Salesforce manufacturing sales blueprint. So what's happening is, if you are a manufacturing customer who's using Salesforce, you go to this blueprint, and the entire language is in the language of Salesforce and manufacturing. It's asking you questions in the language of manufacturing. It knows where to get the data from Salesforce, and you can tweak it a little if you need it to be different. But the entire point is having a guided end-to-end experience where in nine minutes, and I kid you not, there are real case studies of this, in nine minutes we can go from a customer starting to use the product to having a deployed model connected to Salesforce. And that way you're getting customers to solve a business problem as opposed to, hey, I have a really cool technical tool that your team can use to solve the problem. Here we're solving the problem first and then saying, oh, by the way, the way we solve this problem is just an example. If you now want to do marketing, if you now want to do finance, if you want to see how does invoice processing and SAP work, guess what? I have a blueprint for that too but that land better be very focused, otherwise you're making the customer work really hard to get to that first bit of value.
0: Right, and, and that's exactly where I was driving this conversation. Since you did Beyond Core, um, you have learned a lot, and also the industry is much more mature vis-a-vis AI. I think, by and large, entrepreneurs and investors are coming to terms with that reality is that AI actually works mm-hmm. better with use case focus and vertical focus, because then you can train the workflow engines, you can train the vocabulary, you can train the domain knowledge and work the domain knowledge into AI such yeah. that you have real solutions, and those are much easier to sell than, than a platform technology that is kind of all-purpose.
1: But the caveat I would give you is this. A lot of, um, a lot of VCs have learned this uh, they believe that AI should be very vertical, the company should serve, should be very vertical function focused. I actually think that's a terrible idea, and I'll tell you why. AI is um, any existing company in a domain which has a lot of data and has pre-existing sales relationships with customers is going to beat that AI startup if it is very function focused. The way, so the issue becomes, I'm gonna make up a hypothetical story here, I'm not talking of a specific company, Imagine I was a a sales uh, optimization in manufacturing startup. The problem there would be Salesforce would be the most obvious acquirer. And if I came up with something really beautiful, um, Salesforce could replicate just the AI part of it and they would have a competitive advantage. So many of these ideas actually don't pan out because there are no obvious next steps. They eventually have to grow beyond that focus area to try to become a company that can go IPO or find many many acquirers which can become difficult What I'm so I'll counter that
0: uh, hang on I will counter it a very good discussion actually I will counter that by saying that you picked an example that is quite particular because Salesforce is so strong in AI and in sales focused use cases and workflows there are many many domains where that domain knowledge doesn't exist randomly and uh, workflow knowledge doesn't exist, and AI knowledge doesn't ex- exist. So take transportation. Transportation is a category where the domain knowledge is much more esoteric, and you know the AI knowledge is much more rare, so if you build something in transportation, you build something in, 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 a, in a domain that is not as well-penetrated by a major technology company like Salesforce. You, you have a different answer to the question.
1: This would be one of the things only time will tell uh, moments, right? So um, I will agree that there is a um, continuity here. So on one end, um, if there is no existing provider that has access to the data today, like they are basically doing the enterprise applications of yesteryear today in that domain and have a dominant position, then your argument is very valid. I just think that in most domains there is a legacy provider the equivalent of the Oracle applications, and then if there's a later generation, the equivalent of the Salesforce's, where um, they actually have a significant position. If there is such an entrenched player, then the dynamic shifts towards them in the world of AI because large volumes of data and large, uh, and deep domain knowledge and existing relationships will be to the power of just the AI algorithm itself. In fact, one of the decisions <laughs> we took is we decided to not specialize on AI algorithms either. This is actually a very interesting aspect to ABLE. Most of our competitors are trying to build AI. And the thing I keep telling people is, look, the, the domain of machine learning technologies is growing faster than Moore's law. So if you think about the advancements in ML, like one of the funniest things you should do is go take a look at GitHub and look at how many ML-oriented projects yeah. get checked in every day, right? It is absolutely growing exponentially. So what you don't want to do, just like in Moore's Law, if you build your technology to a specific generation of the chip and you customized it beautifully and you got 15% improvement over a generic code, what would happen is Moore's Law was changing the underlying technology so fast that any software that was portable would always be the software that was custom to a specific chip. Same thing is happening now. You don't want to build to a specific underlying algorithm One day it's TensorFlow that is dominant, other day it's Spark ML that's dominant, thinks that there'll be something else that's dominant. You actually want to be at a meta layer on top of all of the underlying AI technologies. You also want to be at a meta layer for use cases and functions. What you should focus in on is how do I make these technologies accessible to business users? iPad, or if you think of Apple in general, Apple never really underlying innovated on the underlying technologies. They innovated on how do I make these technologies very, very accessible and easy to use for a broader market and thus they built a beautiful business out of that. And that's what I think you know, iTunes is another example of that. They didn't make the, uh, the music, they just made the music much more, much more accessible to people. And that's what I think where the real opportunity to build a dominant company in AI comes from.
0: Some, some of what you say is correct, but if you are Apple, you can do some things that a small startup cannot do. So your point is well taken that uh, you shouldn't be working on core AI algorithms. I completely agree with that. Ex- i absolutely in agreement with you because there's too much of that right now. You cannot differentiate. I think the real opportunity for small startups, and, and remember one thing, you're doing your second startup. There are a lot of people, especially in our community, who are doing their first startup and have no uh, no bootstrapping uh, cash to work with. You do. You have bootstrapping cash to work with. So, So that's a fundamental difference between a first-time entrepreneur going into this domain versus you, who is a second-time entrepreneur going into this domain. You have credibility. You can raise money based on your past credibility, and you have – cash with which to bootstrap. So for people who are going into this domain, if they try to go too horizontal, without any differentiated domain knowledge that they can start building something on, they have no chance.
1: Now, I, I, as I said, this is one of those cases where um, uh, I think there's a continuity here uh, and, we'll, um, and people will end up in different points. One, fun, one thought on this before we move on, because your point is valid. Just remember Apple wasn't Apple at once when Apple was started, and the the fascinating thing about Apple the didn't first,
0: do Apple... i, I when Apple was started <laughs>
1: yeah. no, but um, uh, what Apple did is the first thing it did was take a bunch of components, put it inside a bread box, and the second thing it did is added the monitor to that and added the smile on that monitor and that was the key difference that before Apple, everybody was giving pc assembly kits and saying. Hey, assemble it. And there were a couple of other guys like Apple at the same time too. Yes. But the big shift was okay. taking it from assembling something to turning it into something I plug in and it works. And I think that smile on the on the map was the was the most brilliant thing. Just how do
0: I make this technology non threatening? Um, so yeah. that's where so I'm coming from with your middle... point about it. As far as the middle layer of AI is concerned, you're right, that, it, it, that Apple analogy applies, but that you shouldn't be going too, too far to the lower levels of, you know, guts of AI development right now. I completely agree with you. They should be assembled, not built. Completely exactly agree right. with you. But I think I that, is not, that is necessary, but not sufficient. That's the point I'm making is, For somebody who's trying to build a little AI company, get things off the ground, and and you'll see this in today's presentation, you'll see see somebody who's doing AI but is doing it at a level where there is differentiated domain knowledge, and and that's something that's the only way companies, small little companies are cutting through the noise right now, is by Mm -hmm. going in somewhere with differentiated domain knowledge.
1: Yeah, and let's uh, drop back out to my BeyondCore story because you rightly pointed out Able is my second company. Let's talk about how we bootstrapped in the days of BeyondCore because I think there's an important aspect to that. Um, because I was building an AI company in BeyondCore, what was really important to us was having data to train. Because remember, this is the time when yeah. we were still handcrafting AI. This wasn't. You know, billions of dollars research, research having gone into uh, something like TensorFlow that you just pick up and use. So right. uh, what we decided was the thing that we needed the most to bootstrap was access to data. That was more valuable than anything so, uh, else. And it was very difficult to go to individual companies and get data out of them because that was a, you know, very hard sales list. So what we did is, to the point you were making, how do you get leverage? Because I think entrepreneurs find leverage. So leverage, the, leverage yes, we found was, exactly. the leverage we found is we went in and said, well, the outsourcing companies, if I think of business process outsourcing, these BPO companies work with lots of different customers. They have access to lots of customers' data, and there's only about 20 really large ones. Well, can we go work with the BPO companies to analyze their customers' data? And we eventually ended up working with eight of the ten largest BPO companies, if I remember correctly. I might be off by one or two, but most mm-hmm. of the large ones we ended up working with in some form or the other. And we used to go to them and say, hey, look, uh, we will analyze your data. We'll do it for giving you a Six Sigma quality evaluation. Because that's what BPO's cared about. They did not care about the thing we eventually wanted to build, but they cared a lot about quality evaluations of their data. And we worked with them, and the one thing we had in our contracts was anything our AI learns from your data, we get to keep, but we don't get to keep your data. And that's what okay. we systematically used and built up uh, over, a, a, like, you know, many, many years, the AI we needed to actually succeed. So, yes, yeah. my bootstrapping was not, uh, hey, let's, we, let's go, uh, we have a lot of money. I had to figure out a way to bootstrap my data.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think to your point, today we are at a at an age where there is a lot more data available in the market, but you still, as a small startup, you still have to create that leverage of where your data set is going to come from and how do you plug into that data set? How do you get access to that data set to train your models? Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Fabulous. And (laughs) And the value you create to get the data may very well and should very well be different from the value you create when you have your AI. So people need to stay focused on what is phase one and what is phase two. People often obsess of if these things were all – if all these things happened, I would have this fantastic company. Well, you have to first figure out what do you need to do to get the things that you need to have a fantastic company. So think through stages. Your first stage might be very different
0: from your second stage. Yeah. Now, uh, talk a bit about Salesforce.com. Obviously, you had a, you know, great – exit with the encore into Salesforce.com that brought you very close to the Salesforce.com ecosystem. What have you learned from that process of how to work with Salesforce.com that you're leveraging in ABLE? And I'll give you a bit of uh, my thought on, you know, Salesforce has absolutely knocked the ball out of the park on their fast strategy, platform as a service Mm -hmm. strategy. And so many companies have being built in a very capital-efficient way on top of the Salesforce.com past, Viva is an example that I absolutely love to get. $4 million, that's all they spent. They turned basically $4 million to $600 million plus in revenue and and multi-billion market cap. They raised money, but they didn't use the money. It was really that they built on top of Salesforce.com and, and built an incredibly capital-efficient company. So. Around salesforce.com, a lot of these success stories have come together, and I know many CEOs who have very effectively leveraged salesforce.com. Now, you are doing this with an AI company in you know, the 2018, 2019, coming up to 2020 time frame, when everything is so much more mature. So tell us how you are leveraging the platform and the ecosystem and the app exchange, the marketplace, everything.
1: So, we are somewhat in the early days into integrating into Salesforce, though we are a Salesforce partner and we are a Tableau partner, and Tableau, of course, got acquired by Salesforce. Yeah. So, one of the first things we did is we built um, uh, what's called a Tableau extension, and similarly, we have a Salesforce plugin where you can experience ABLE inside Salesforce, inside Tableau, because our key point was you want to meet the business user where they are. You don't want to force them to learn one more tool. And when you plug into something like Salesforce, which is so broadly adopted and used by people all the time, essentially what you're doing is you're augmenting their daily lives. You're giving them the information they need at the moment of taking a decision in the platform they already use. That is a far lower friction way to have an impact than trying to convince them to pay attention to you and move to your app, move to you, that mm-hmm. kind of a, a you know, shift of attention for a business user is very difficult to earn. It is much easier to get the in, insight into the application they already use. So that has been one of the key aspects of working with Salesforce and Tableau for us and we are continuing to expand and do more. But and is there department.
0: a particular use case in that uh, ecosystem that you are getting a lot of traction around? And, and question number two on that is, are you getting a lot of leads from that ecosystem?
1: Yeah, um, so both are true. In the case of Salesforce, it's much more use case focused than in the case of Tableau, uh, because Tableau tends to be very general purpose, so you can actually use ABLE in a very general purpose way. Uh, the Tableau use case has just been, if you already have data in a dashboard, click a button, and now you can do AI on top of that, right? Um, yeah. uh, but yeah. in the Salesforce use case, we started again, because it's Salesforce, we started with sales optimization. So there is a case study that Gartner did where um, the CEO of a uh, 150 year plus sewing company, uh, Mero sewing company, uh, the CEO went in, clicked the button, uh, connected ABLE to Salesforce, and two hours later, even though he had dirty data, but his data was just like everybody's data. There was nothing special mm-hmm. done. Uh, two hours later, he had found $3 million of um, leads that had been ignored before Able got involved. So when mm-hmm. you can help a business user in two hours find $3 million of value in a platform that they already use, that fundamentally changes the art of the possible. Because people are used to thinking, oh, to get value out of AI, I have to spend three, six months, and I have to get data scientists in, and I have to do all this work. But when you can show customers that they can get to real value in a matter of hours, and by the way, we don't promise hours. We typically tell customers that, hey, you'll get this done in about two weeks to a month, which is already exciting for them. But that's just to keep some safety in case we run into trouble. But most people from start to finish are getting the actual project done in about nine minutes but they're getting to value where they have identified something of value very, very quickly. Um, so well, that's where fantastic. the use case focus helps.
0: Fantastic. So switching the line of question a little bit, or is it on um, team building, you are doing this in, San, uh, in the Bay Area. What, is, what has been your experience? Of course, when you were doing beyond code, the AI wasn't hot. Now AI is red hot. How are you dealing with the talent wars, and and how have you structured your company?
1: So I'm a little strange in that, even though I've been uh, in the domain of outsourcing and I've been on the in you know, the leadership of outsourcing associations and stuff, I have never actually outsourced core development. And um, I tend to are you talking outsourced my... or offshore? Outsource or offshore. Like I have always had all my core people in one geography, in fact, usually in one room.
0: Office. okay. Uh, part,
1: and a lot of people have told me that's insane. And uh, I'll tell you what I do and uh, what we are going to do um, soon. I just fundamentally believe that AI or algorithms or anything that is truly innovative, the best way to do it is to get developers who are orders of magnitude better, like the people I work with, their productivity is orders of magnitude better than a typical developer, right? Um, And put them in a room, put them only with A-plus players, and then ask the impossible of them. And they will deliver over and over again, they will deliver. But by having people in the room and not allowing the walls, like my data scientist is sitting right next to my DevOps guy, is seated right next to my UX guy who's sitting right next to the designer, what you end up happening is rather than having silos inside the company, when the data science team is coming up with something interesting, they, before they start doing too much, they quickly ask the, the middleware guy, hey, what would happen if I could give you this? And that guy asked the U.S., hey, what could you do if I, if I could do this? And he eliminated a lot of waste that you would have if you didn't have that kind of intensity uh, in the room. Now, the flip side of that is now that we are building many of these adapters, so when we are building a Salesforce adapter, that we outsource to a vendor um, who's not, uh, I think, uh, there are in, uh, I think, partly in Canada and partly in India. But the point is that when we, are now, when we are building the SAP adapter, we plan to outsource that. Anything that is to the periphery, where you're taking the core algorithms, core product, and connecting it to things, that i think can and should be done at lower cost locations because you can't get that much volume of talent in the bay area but uh, How the big reason i'm still doing uh, the core team is on 30 people
0: yeah 30 people see the, the yeah, issue and and, and, and uh, address this issue for me for a moment the issue mm-hmm. that a lot of people are having right now is this hotshot ai developers all want to do their own startups. So so you have managed to build a core team of 30 people who are willing to work on ABLE. Uh, What what is the experience? What uh, what distinguishes people from who who want to assemble together and build something with you versus people who want to branch off and do their own?
1: So um, let's make it even more interesting. Um, Several of my developers – are people who walked away from hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars of golden handcuffs from salesforce to come back and work for me again and by the way for me that's a huge responsibility because when i see people walk away from that much guaranteed money and these are young people right like a million bucks is a lot to them right uh that's a responsibility that you that you take on because you're like i can't let these people down because they believed uh and and decided to join And if I look at my broader team, all of the new people who have come on, they're fantastic. Like one of the guys was one of the top people at Google um, uh, on Bayesian algorithms. Uh, These are like people who had many, many options in front of them. But I think the difference is we, both at Beyond Coran and Able, we built a truly meritocratic, no politics, no BS, no waste kind of environment. See, the reason most of these um, hotshot engineers want to go do their own startup is because they can't put up with the bureaucracy of somebody else telling them what to do. They yeah. feel disempowered. They feel like they're a cog in the wheel. And guess what? You don't get the top-tier talent to stay if they feel that way. In my entire career, I've had three regretted turns. And by the way, every one of those three, I, I, like I remember them, two of them have actually come back and, uh, you know, we had discussions about whether they can come work. But in my entire career, though I've fired many people, I've let go many people. I've only had three regretted churns. And the reason for it is it, it, the most important thing for an entrepreneur is not to be it's not to be namby-pamby and make it a soft and easy environment because a top tier talent actually doesn't want a soft and easy environment. It is an environment where you hold people to the highest standards possible. They know they're doing the top level work they could possibly do. They love the people around themselves. They love the mission. They know why they're doing what they're doing. That kind of an environment, which is very high pressure, but very respectful of that individual's talent and abilities, that's mm-hmm. the only kind of environment where you'll attract the top-tier talent. And um, I've just been really lucky uh, in, in the kind of people who have considered um, working with me. And um, I really think that's the most important part of Making a company grow to the scale I need able to grow, because you can as an entrepreneur you can push a certain bit, but at some point if you are the bottleneck to the growth of your company, you're dead. And uh, right now I have this rule: I only make ten decisions a day. Over time, I want to bring it down to five decisions a day, because I'm basically forcing my team to do as many of the decisions themselves.
0: they're own decisions. Yeah, that's great. Now, um, last question, where are you? my camera
1: suddenly turned off, but I can- Your uh, cameras turned off, answering. but your voice is coming yeah.
0: through, so you can figure out the camera yeah. situation, but I'm going to switch us to the entrepreneur pitches in a moment, but let me ask one last oh, question. Sorry. Where, yes. Where is your core team right now? In San Francisco? Bay Area, Foster so,
1: City. Foster City, Bay Area. Fosser. With a wonderful right. view of the Bay and great places to walk right outside the building, uh, because you want to not have a boiler room environment, even though it's an intense environment. And where where do you live? Uh, San Carlos, so very San, close.
0: Very close by. Great. So you're not dealing with Bay Area commute and all these uh, problems that are becoming issues for Silicon Valley these days.
1: So we actually took a vote among all of the developers, all of the teammates, to figure out where yeah. we would locate. And that was important because I did not vote on where we Very were going And one of Very my co-founders, important. he's in the East Bay, and he's t- doing an hour's commute. And if he had gone by hierarchy, he could have easily said, hey, I'm the co-founder, I'm going to minimize my commute. But the team yeah. saw that we literally took votes from everyone, and we took the point that was convenient for everyone. And that, I think, mm-hmm. is, again, how you build the community, is your team needs yeah. to know, that the decisions are being taken on merit, not based on who's the most uh, senior person in the room. Yeah, very good.
0: Excellent, excellent.